0: I'm Michael Shoulder and on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations a podcast for the insanely curious my curiosity about how people overcome their internal struggles to live more satisfying lives has taken me to the Palo Alto home of psychiatrist Irvin Yalom. Dr. Yalom is one of the world's most successful, influential, and innovative figures in the field of psychotherapy. Our conversation comes on the eve of the publication of his memoir one of the things that really strikes me about your life as I read your life story and your yeah. memoir is that there were very few moments mm-hmm. where you were really
1: depressed or unhappy. I, I, I hardly ever get depressed. That's one thing I get. Anxiety is my disease, not, not depression. That might provide some comfort to people. Uh-huh. Because anxiety is my disease. <laughs> I so, can tell. Can you? Can you really? I can see that there's a little anxiety in there. I love the idea you had a comedian for a father, because that means you can kind of laugh at yourself too at times. I'm happy to turn this into a personal therapy session. <laughs> As
0: tempted as I was to turn my conversation with Dr. Yallam into a personal therapy session, I resisted the temptation. And I hope you'll agree, listening to Irvin Yallam, who is now 86, speak here about his new memoir, Becoming Myself, can provide therapeutic benefits to every one of us. Well, Dr. Yallam... Thank you for joining me on a second time on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. <laughs> Honored to be asked twice. <laughs> I have read your memoir, Becoming Myself, a psychiatrist memoir. The last time we spoke, you were in the middle of writing it. Yes. I got a very happy hmm. feeling reading Becoming Myself, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, right. but I thought, well, yeah. Becoming Myself, I felt like you're still in the process yes. of becoming yourself. Right. I'm not
1: finished yet.
0: So what has changed between the time before you, you wrote this memoir and today as we sit here?
1: First thought that comes to my mind is that in the current Atlantic, there's an interview about me and they interviewed me in the hospital. after I had a knee replacement. I was really sick and I, uh, I thought I was gonna die then. So the article, it pre- presents me as, as three quarters dead. You know, and it shows me holding a holding a, uh, walker, and walker. I'm just about feeble, and um, and so it looked as though I were ever going to die. I've had I've had a just a massive surge of emails from people, you know, wanting to say one last thing to me, etc. So I put something on my Facebook a few days ago saying, look, that was then, and I was never sicker, and I didn't want to be interviewed then. Um, uh, I, 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 the fact that Atlantic called me and wanted to interview me just in time, this new book is coming out. This is wonderful publicity, so I, I had to do the interview. And I said to him, "Look, see me a week later, please. Two weeks later." And he said, "He said I can't do it. I've already bought my non-refundable airline ticket, and I can't do it. And I just didn't want to call that bluff because I, I want the interview. So I was terribly sick when he came to
0: see me." So now for, for all of Dr. Irvin Yalom's fans, he walked up to this office outside his house, what is it, 150 feet from your house? Yeah. Very vigorously. Without a cane. I didn't even see the cane. No, I, I didn't looked know. it up the house. And, and I can't tell which knee. Yeah. Uh, you're wearing long pants, but I couldn't tell which ne- knee you were favoring. totally
1: healed. I'm, le- I'm left with a little bit of balance problems, which is getting better every, every day, I think, a little bit better.
0: Irvin Yalom has insisted this memoir will be his very
1: last book, but it sounds like he may have found a loophole. I thought that would be my last book, and my wife kind of insisted that it was, and she's just finished a book, too. It'll come out, the same publisher, in a couple of months later. We're we're both writers, and uh, she said she was going to tear up any pages I wrote during during the night. But but anyway... um, so I, that that then I thought, well, you know, I'm not too comfortable living without writing, but then I dismissed that, and you know? I'll I'll write some shorter things. I even wrote a poem. I've been fiddling around with poetry, but I don't think I have the genes for it. But um, but I started to write a couple of short pieces. Shorts. I don't know what I'll do with them, but that feels that feels good. Uh, so I had to kind of figure out well, what's what's life going to be like now. Usually a memoir. Slash autobiography is, is kind of at the, at the end of one's life. Um, but I've got some new ideas, and I've been seeing new patients. And I, in fact, I see a lot of patients now, because I'm not, often I don't see patients very long. just a session or two consultation. Sometimes I'll, I'll pick up someone for a year, no longer. But a lot of new people have crossed my horizon recently, so that's always fascinating. Just to enter into their lives very briefly but very deeply uh, so that's quite interesting otherwise um, life goes on i'm feeling quite good now
0: it's interesting you say to me that you see patients briefly because one of the things that struck me as somebody who's been in therapy myself is mm-hmm. you advise that there be a certain time limit on therapy a yeah. certain limit to the duration of therapy and that helps focus people more and produces better results, which is interesting because not everybody takes that same approach.
1: Well, you know, I didn't really do that for the patients. I did that for myself because I'm just not going to, not going to be able to see anyone for five years. I don't know how long, much longer I'll be alive. So I started off doing it by myself, but it has that effect. Uh, We're going to meet for a year, and I I tell them when six months is up, when nine months is up, and it does really, I think, hasten the work in many ways. That is not an original discovery.
0: So it occurs to me, maybe this is just ironic, but existential psychotherapy, dealing with the terror of death, Mm -hmm. is something that you have become famous for. Mm -hmm. And you say that there is a real benefit to staring death in the face mm-hmm. and recognizing your mortality that it leads, as uh, your term, it can lead to moments of awakening mm-hmm. that leads to you making the changes that mm-hmm. you've always needed to make. Yeah. It almost sounds like there's a parallel there. Well, I uh,
1: hadn't quite thought of it that way, but that's a very interesting way to put it. Yeah, and, and using, using termination as kind of an analogy for, for death and maybe that would hasten, it. yeah, that, that, that's, that is true. And to to really accept and to know death is one of the ways that you can deal with rather than fall into despair, it may push you into living life more fully while we have it.
0: I have a question for you now that, and I know you're not uh, an observant Jew. Mm -hmm. I'm Jewish. Mm -hmm. And I do like the traditions. And, you know, we're doing this interview. It's going to air probably a little after Rosh Hashanah. But there was a story I once heard from a rabbi. uh, It's the old country. And... The man is walking to get back in time for sundown on the eve of Rosh Hashanah. There are holes in his shoes and he's not going to make it unless he can get this shoe repaired. And he walks through this village and, you know, it's almost dusk, but he sees there's a cobbler working by candlelight.
1: This is a good story. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I love stories. And I'm interested in this one. Go ahead. I'll give it to you.
0: And, <laughs> and there's a cobbler working by candlelight and there's not much candle left. Yeah. And the man walks in. And he says, I've got to get home. And the only way I'm going to get home is if you can fix my shoes.
1: And it's getting dark quickly. And it's getting uh, dark
0: quickly. Can you, can you fix my shoe with that much candle left? And he said, as long as the flame is burning, there is time to make the repairs.
1: <laughs> well, you, that means you can just keep on growing until, until the flame goes out. And uh, keep thinking and growing until the very end. Before we dig
0: further into this conversation, I want to briefly return to my first interview with Dr. Yallam in 2015. We discussed his early life when his proverbial candle had just been lit. I asked him if he could point to a specific moment that inspired him to work to become the high-achieving, dedicated doctor he is today, and he shared a transformative story that is now highlighted in his new memoir.
1: One story is when I was about 13 or 14, my father had a a heart attack uh, and he was near death and we were waiting for the doctor to come. Doctors came to visit your house that day and my mother was very upset and screaming at me saying I had caused this, that's the kind of relationship we had. So I was absolutely, absolutely overwhelmed. And so the doctor came. He drove up to the house. I could hear the tires crunching the leaves in Washington, D.C. in the autumn. And uh, and he came up to the house, and I knew that doctor. He'd been my doctor, too. And he immediately, uh, he shook, you know, put his hand on my head and waved my hair and uh, greeted me. And then when he was with my father, he let me listen to my father's heart so that I could hear that it was beating steadily. And he says, you know, it's, a, it's a ticking very well. And he He's going to be all right. I was so grateful to that doctor. His name was Benjamin Manchester, that somehow I think at some part of me, I sort of resolved that I I would try to pass that along to others, that kind of great, great relief that he had.
0: You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm journalist Michael Shoulder, and I'm speaking with Dr. Irvin Yalom, the beloved psychotherapist and author and longtime professor at Stanford University, who at the age of 86 is just out this week with his memoir called Becoming Myself. A little later, we'll dip into our 2015 conversation again to hear him explain two of his most powerful concepts in therapy for people suffering distress. First, Back to the Wavemaker conversation Dr. Yalam
1: and I had just a couple of weeks ago. Dementia, that's the thing that scares me most of all. Uh, and it seems to me quality of life must be terrible, at least from my viewpoint. I do forget things, and um, I see patients, and I take very copious notes, I dictate notes. I've got a couple of pages every session to make sure I keep that in mind. Um, and I am forgetting things, but it, I feel like this is typical for my age. Unfortunately, both my wife and I, and between the two of us, we can usually recall something that we want to, that we want to mention to the others. Um, so dementia is what worries me most of all. And there are things that I have to give up. This depressed me tremendously because I thought I was never gonna be able to walk, um, to have any balance. Um, and curiously enough, the thing that, that bothered me the most is I love to bicycle. And I, up, up to the surgery, I bicycled around this neighborhood every day, every day without fail. Um, I even I spent a day or two at San Francisco every week. And I had a bicycle up there too. And then later I had a bicycle folded in my trunk of my car and I'd go down to the marina where the bay is in San Francisco and bicycle there. So that's that really worried me a great deal. And I was very uh, upset and depressed thinking I'll never be able to bike again. But then I kind of got over that. I saw a therapist uh, because I was feeling so bad for the, that period of time and that helped a little bit. I like being in therapy. I've gone several times in my life, and if there's something going on, I'll always learn something new about myself. So now, I'm still not riding a bike, and my balance isn't quite good enough. There's that first fall that you could really get hurt at your age, so I'm, I'm waiting. But even if I can't bike anymore, it, it's okay. You know, I've kind of, I can let that go too.
0: One of your principles is, which a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists do not follow is, be transparent about yourself, share yes. some of yourself with people. And so you shared with me that, you know, while you don't generally suffer from depression, hardly ever, you know, anxiety you do suffer from. And I'm just curious if, if through your experiences of anxiety, I don't know how severe they were, if there's something you can share with us that helps you mm-hmm. when you feel those moments of anxiety.
1: Let me tell you a story. I'll write about this someday. but. I- I had a patient here quite recently who has had a terrible life, a lot of abuse by her parents and uh, um, become a drug addict for most of her life. She's in her mid-twenties now. She needs a lot of time in therapy and I can't treat her and you someone's going to be with her for a long time. And she says, I'm beyond repair. And uh, nonetheless, I said, I've got someone that I really want you to see. I know would be a good person for you to see. She left my office at that point. And when she left my office, I had just got my book in the mail from the publisher. who just arrived. And I was looking at a picture. It's on page 54. And there is a picture of where I used to live. I, I lived in a, in a very poor area of Washington, DC, till I was about 15. This wave of anxiety came over me, looking at where I lived. It brought back all the memories I'd had. And I was staring at it, and she knocked at my door. Came back five minutes after she left, and she said, I forgot to give you your check. So I took the check, and she was going to walk out. And then I said, wait a minute, come here over here. I want you to see something. So I showed her that picture in the book there. And I said to her, that's where I came from. I wanted to say to her, next sentence was going to be, you know, uh, I got past it and you can too. But I just couldn't, it, just so much anxiety flooded me. I can hardly ever talk about this, I always feel a little tearful. That's work I gotta do in therapy. Um, so <clears throat> she stared at her for a long time, looked at me, said, thank you. And she walked out. I knew that I had changed her life. I just had this really strong sense it's going to be tremendously impactful. She called me a couple of days later and said she wanted to see one one more time. So okay. I saw her one more time and she <clears throat> she worked on this and we worked on her seeing this therapist and she agreed to do it. Mm-hmm. And So she started therapy with him. I think she, it's going to help her. You're asking about anxiety, but it's a kind of anxiety as I look at that picture. It was very anxious. I tried to use it for the benefit of my patient, and I exposed myself a good deal. So exposing myself, showing some things, I've hardly ever, ever done it with a patient without something good coming of it. Mm -hmm. Laced throughout this book Mm -hmm. is just
0: one new friendship after another, after Mm -hmm. another, and they seem to be triggered by your common intellectual interests mm-hmm. or pursuits and this seems to be from reading your work and the work of others that this is a, a key aspect of mental health mm-hmm. is developing healthy meaningful relationships with other people At
1: my age i've had um, in grief for a lot of people who have died um, three a lot three very close ones last year my sister also so i had these very close friends who i would speak to on the phone every week at least because they may be in other parts of the country uh and and all three of them have died uh these are my cadaver mates go back to medical school in the first year um so i've lost a lot of them but i i have always felt that that intimate friends were extremely important and i always ask my patients that who who are your friends how often do you see them and and above all i always ask and who, who are your confidants? Who are the people who, you, who really know you, who you tell everything to? Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I think for people who say, well, there's no one like that, that that's something I want to look into and see what, what stops them from being close, what stops them from being connected. And, and if they aren't there, I really want to do something about teaching them to be closer to people with me, and, and groups are very good for that. Uh, and that's one of the good things I like to be about groups, because you soon have six or seven confidants. They start to know everything about you. And uh, you be been in group for a couple of years. You do a lot of good work with that. Before we
0: hear one last very moving story from Dr. Yalom, which includes a cameo appearance from the former commissioner of Major League Baseball, a sport Yalom loves, I want to dip back into our 2015 interview, where he addresses two essential principles of his therapeutic approach. Here you are at 84, still going strong and still highly motivated to help people, and that must have required a lot of resilience. Where did you get your resilience from, and what what do you think is is that secret source? If there were one key ingredient
1: for resilience, what is it? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a very difficult question. I don't think I can. I don't think I can answer that. Where did I get my own resilience? I I, I really don't know. Um, and I'm thinking about it a great. I'm thinking about it a great deal now, as as I, as I write this memoir. You know, I I struggled very hard as a student to to get into medical school. Uh, when I went to medical school, this is. It's hard to believe, really, but at that time, there was a rather official 5% uh, limit to taking Jewish students in the medical school class. They took no more than 5%. A, five,
0: a 5% quota on Jewish
1: students. 5% quota. It was nationwide. Uh, and so I, I had a, I worked terribly, terribly hard in undergraduate school. I thought my mission only was to make it an all, and they could not turn me down. And so then I went into into medical school. It
0: strikes me that uh, there was a phrase in one of your books, you, you talk about the value of regret. You say regret has been given a bad name. And you hear people say this all the time, I have no regrets. And I almost find that hard to believe. And I, and I think you your framing is critical to convey to the audience because you view regret as uh, something that has the potential to transform one's present and future in a very positive way. Describe to me the
1: value of regret. I've never had a patient come to see me see me and have no regrets. Of course, they're self-selected. But I work with regrets quite a bit. And they, they look at what they regretted in their life and what they haven't done in their life. And that's one thing, to look at regrets from the past. But then you you have a moment where you can begin to to say to them, how could you, if we were to meet a year from now, and you were to see me one year from now, how could you possibly have lived a regret-free life during that time? And that's where the therapeutic crunch comes in. What could you do differently so that you wouldn't constantly be building up regrets, which you use to judge yourself adversely? So I, I like to work with that concept. It's awfully important for an awful lot of people. Since this is a
0: wave maker conversation, I want to share with you something. An oceanographer once explained to me what waves do in the ocean. She said they transfer energy over long distances. So I'd like you to start with a concept that you say is a singularly powerful concept in countering what you call our human anxiety over death and the transience of life, and that is rippling. Tell me about rippling how you discovered it, how you discovered the importance of it, and how you use it in your life, and your patients'
1: lives. Well, rippling is a concept that I described in staring at the sun. And uh, for the listeners, the, the, the word staring at the sun comes from an aphorism by a French writer who said that, uh, that there are two things we shouldn't stare at. We shouldn't stare at the, at the sun and we shouldn't stare at death. Uh, this book, however, is taking issue with the second part of that that I, I feel that it, it, that we should be staring at death uh, because uh, the, it can change our life to look at look at death. and if we uh, we stare away from it or pretend it doesn't happen or deny death, uh, that then I think perhaps we're living a little bit less fully and less uh, authentically. So I'm, I'm suggesting that we can stare directly at death and there there'll be some benefits from that. So what I did was work for many, many years with patients who were dying of cancer. And it was through working with these patients that I began to, to learn a, a, a great deal about what it means to, to face death. The, the basic thing that I learned is this, this adage that though the actuality or the physicality of, of death destroys us, the idea of death can save us. And so I've I've looked at a lot of different ways of, of coping with death. One of my solutions is is the idea of rippling, that if we think of, just as a stone thrown into a pond, we'll just keep rippling on and on and on, transferring energy, if you will, I like that idea. Uh, but it's it, something of ourself that we pass on to others. And that we're not going to experience, and of course we're not. Uh, the uh, people have been dying since the creation of life, uh, but it, nonetheless, through through rippling, through some way, we can influence others, who will influence others, and others too. then I think we we pass things uh, along with ourselves.
0: Give us a few examples, you know, or an example or two from your own practice and the people who you have gotten to know and help over the years, where rippling has
1: really turned around somebody's life. Well, I, I take great great pleasure in uh, my patients and in, even in answering email people to try to give them something, which then ripples over to their children and their children. I, I saw it happen in... I saw it happen in, in the therapy groups they used to leave with cancer patients. I'll never forget one patient, a woman. Uh, these were all patients who had advanced breast cancer, which was much more lethal in those days than it is now. Uh, so everyone in the group had metastasis and was going to die of their disease. And this was a very depressed uh, older woman. Uh, well, she was not older woman. She was about, about in her late 40s, early 50s. And one day she came to the group and she had she had brighter clothes on she had a little bit of a sparkle and and when we and she looked better as she looked much less depressed when we asked her what had happened and she says I made a very very important decision this week. I decided that I would model how to die with grace I would model that for my children and uh, that was a tremendously important piece of learning for me too she was a way of imbuing the end of her life with still something that would be meaningful, meaningful to others, so it's the same kind of rippling effect. Even then, as she's dying, she has something else to offer, and that's how to face death.
0: And now, as we approach the end of this wave maker conversation with Irvin Yalom, I want to return to our most recent chat for one last insight triggered by a story related to his love of baseball. Uh, I want to give you a wonderful quote I got from I was interviewing, are you a baseball fan at all?
1: No, oh, yeah
0: okay. I, I interviewed the former commissioner of Major League Baseball, Fay Vincent, oh, yeah. okay. who is a, a real oral historian of right. baseball and mm-hmm. knew all the greats yeah. and he told me what he calls his favorite. Story and favorite answer from a conversation with Warren Spahn. Oh yeah, left hand pitcher for the Braves. <laughs> That's right, my Atlanta Braves. And so uh, he he asked Warren Spawn, "Who taught you how to pitch?" I once said to him, Warren,
1: "Who taught you how to pitch?" And his answer is the single most brilliant answer on any question I've ever received talking to anybody. And he looked at me as if I had to be the dumbest person he'd ever talked to about baseball. And in sort of a a patronizing way, he said to me, Commissioner, hitters taught me how to pitch. And I thought, of course. And who teaches doctors how to be doctors but patients? Who teaches lawyers how to be lawyers but clients? Who teaches anybody anything? You do it by learning from your your experiences, and he learned how to pitch from hitters. (laughs) And so I ask
0: you, that application, it feels throughout your memoir and throughout your work that patients have really taught you in many ways how to be a great therapist.
1: Yeah, I I think that's so. I think that's so. In fact, this book, Existential Psychotherapy, and when I... I started writing that book. I knew that the major section would be on death, and I started to try to talk about death to my everyday patient. I, I couldn't do it. I didn't know how. Now I, now I could do it, but also it was more difficult. But but um, but then I started to think, well, I'll start to work with people who have to talk about death, who are, who have a fatal illness, So for 10 years, I worked with cancer patients. And one of those patients very early on, one of the very few that I saw was a woman named, her name in my book is Paula. Uh, She died a long time ago, Uh, but I, I call her Paula. And uh, she was a wonderful mentor for me in teaching me how to talk about death. And, and together we organized groups of, of cancer patients. So for many years I, I learned how to talk to them through, through patients.
0: So what did your patients teach you about how to talk about death? Because it's a scary subject and it's uncomfortable.
1: Well, we did it very forthrightly. I learned from her that that many dying patients are exceedingly isolated because they don't want to talk about death to others and bring everybody else in their family or their acquaintances down. Uh, And secondly, other people tend to isolate them because they don't want to talk about things that will make them more depressed. So they're very isolated and given the opportunity to the uh, the patients that came to our groups you know, were grateful for, the, for having this free forum where they could talk about all the morbid, frightening thoughts that they had had because others had the same idea. Uh, she used that metaphor that we're like little ships at sea uh, each by ourselves in this boat in this dark sea uh, but with, maybe with a candle in the boat but at least we can see all the little lights around us You know, so there's some sort of comradeship
0: in in that. Dr. Irvin Yalom, thank you so much for, for again, being on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Your your memoir, Becoming Myself, a psychiatrist's memoir, uh, publication date is when? October 3rd. It's a beautiful read, and both about your life story and... The principles of great therapy that you have that have evolved over the years so thank you so much thank you it's a
1: pleasure for me to speak to you it's very entertaining (laughs) thank you very much
0: you've been listening to wave maker conversations a podcast for the insanely curious if you find this podcast enriching i hope you subscribe for free on itunes or you can go to my website wavemaker.me once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. My thanks to Rebecca Lee Douglas, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker
1: Conversations.